Chapter Three of Energy and Vibration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Nature's Miracles, Volume Two Energy and Vibration by Elisha Gray. Energy, Chapter Three The Forces of Nature. Having now, in a general way, Given some idea of what is meant by energy in its two forms of motion and position, let us stop a moment and consider what are called the forces of nature. Force has been defined as the cause of motion, and energy the motion itself, or the ability to pass into motion. A weight that is elevated from the surface of the earth and suspended possesses something that it did not possess before it was elevated. This something is its ability to fall when released, and this ability we call potential energy. While it is falling, it possesses moving energy. So far as the weight is related to force, it is acted upon equally whether it lies upon the ground or is suspended in the air. This force we call gravitation, and as compared with some of the other forces, it may be called a very weak force, acting through very long distances. It is the force of gravity that causes the tides, occasioned by the mutual pull between the earth and the moon. The attraction of gravitation between the sun and the earth is also felt, and made sensible in the tidal phenomena. So true is this that there is a very great difference in the height to which the tide rises when both the sun and moon are pulling upon the earth in the same line, as opposed to that which takes place when they are in opposition to each other. In the case of the sun, the attraction of gravitation is acting through a distance of over ninety million miles. The sun's attraction is less than that of the moon, because of the greater distance through which the attraction has to act. If the two were equidistant from the earth, the attraction of the sun would be many, many times greater than that of the moon. There are other forces in nature that are in a sense like the attraction of gravitation. They differ in the respect that, when the bodies between which the attraction exists are sufficiently close together, it is very powerful, but it is totally lost the moment there is any perceptible separation. First of these, let us consider the force called cohesion. This force is the attraction which one molecule has for another, or mass of molecules have for each other, acting, however, through an infinitesimally small space. A pane of glass is held together with great rigidity, but the moment a crack runs through it, although the parts each side of the crack seem to be in solid contact, the two pieces have lost all attraction for each other. The attraction of cohesion, then, exists between the molecules of matter, and, unlike gravitation, it acts only through an extremely short space. A moment's reflection would show us how extremely inconvenient it would be if it were otherwise. On the other hand, it would be just as inconvenient if gravitation did not act through very long distances, as we find it does. If, for instance, it were like cohesion, there would be nothing whatever to hold us down to the earth as soon as we had raised our feet from it. What the boys call a broad jump would become a very high jump. There is another force, called chemical affinity, which is very much like cohesion, in that it acts through very short distances, but its attraction is not between molecules of a substance, but between the atoms of which the molecules are made up. The study of the laws that govern this force is one to which the chemist must especially address himself. For the purposes of our subject we may treat the attraction of cohesion and the attraction of chemical affinity the same as we do the attraction of gravitation. It requires energy just as truly to overcome these attractions as it does to overcome the attraction that gravitation has 
for a stone lying upon the surface of the earth. It requires energy to raise the stone from the surface of the earth to some fixed elevated position. It requires energy also to overcome the attraction of cohesion by separating molecule from molecule, and it just as truly requires energy to overcome the attraction of chemical affinity, and thereby rend atom from atom, as they are related to each other in a molecule of any substance. If we apply heat to water, a portion of that heat is made sensible in the water by an increased action of its ultimate particles, the intensity of which may be measured by a thermometer, while another portion of the heat is expended in a rearrangement of the molecules when it passes into a state of vapor. Another and a vastly greater amount of heat is again absorbed in the internal work of breaking up the water molecule and converting it into its constituent gases, oxygen and hydrogen. We now have stored energy, or energy of position, existing in these gases by the act of chemical separation, just as truly as we have potential energy stored in a weight that has been elevated from the surface of the earth, which we may call mechanical separation. We have spoken of the analogy or likeness existing between the atoms of oxygen and hydrogen and that of a weight elevated from the earth's surface, in the respect that both possess energy of position. Let us trace for a moment the processes used in attaining the position in both cases. When we apply heat to a boiler, a part of this heat is converted, through the medium of a steam engine, into mechanical rotary motion. By the energy of this motion we are enabled, through the medium of a rope and a pulley, to wind up a weight to an elevated position. A part of the heat that has been generated by the burning of the fuel appears simply as sensible heat, while another passes into mechanical energy, which is used in winding up the weight. To produce chemical separation, we also may apply heat, a part of which will appear as sensible heat, measurable by means of a thermometer, and a part will be absorbed in the work of separating atom from atom. In the case of the wound-up weight, the energy set free by the burning of the fuel exists partly as sensible heat that has radiated off into space, and partly as stored energy in the wound-up weight. If the weight is allowed to fall, it becomes molecular or heat energy when it strikes the earth, and the sum of the energy, to wit, the heat developed by the fall of the weight, and that which radiated into space during the process of winding up the weight, is exactly equal to the amount that was originally developed by the burning of the coal. In like manner, the heat that was employed to separate the molecules of water into its constituent gases has been given back as sensible heat when the atoms clash together again by the force of chemical affinity to form water. The measure of the heat absorbed in forcing the atoms apart is precisely the measure of that which is given up when they reunite to form water. The green leaves of the forest have the power to gather up from the air the carbon dioxide and the vapor of moisture. That wonderful laboratory of nature, the chlorophyll of the green leaf, calls to its aid the power of the sunbeam and rends the molecules of water and carbon dioxide, atom from atom, stores the carbon and hydrogen in the woody fiber, and throws back into the air the pure oxygen. It has required energy to produce this chemical separation, which is stored in the woody fiber, and when the wood is burned as fuel, it gives back in the form of heat the measure of the energy expended by the sunbeam in the growth of the wood. The energy that is stored in wood and coal is therefore energy of position. Another form of energy of position is seen in electrical separation. If we rub two substances together, such as a silk handkerchief and a glass rod, 
the rod and the handkerchief are said to be electrified oppositely. The glass will have a static charge of positive electricity, and the silk will have an equal static charge of negative electricity. Neither of these substances is a conductor of electricity, and therefore the charge cannot be immediately dissipated. The two kinds of electricity are in a state of tension with reference to each other, just as a bow and its string are when the bow is bent. If released, they will fly together, and their attractions will be satisfied. When we rub the glass rod with the silk handkerchief, energy is expended in doing it. A part of this energy appears as electricity, on the rod and on the handkerchief, and a part is represented by heat. In order to produce this electrical effect, the two substances that are rubbed together must not only be non-conductors, but they must be unlike in molecular structure. They must be heterogeneous and not homogeneous. If we were to cover the glass rod with the silk, the rubbing of silk on silk would produce no sensible electrical effect. The mechanical energy put forth in the rubbing would all, in this case, be directly converted into heat, while in the former case a part of the energy first appeared as electricity. If we construct a galvanic battery, the two metals used must not be alike, and the greater the difference there is in their molecular structures, the more favorable are the conditions for producing electricity. If instead of using copper and zinc for the two elements, we should simply use two pieces of copper or two pieces of zinc, we should get no electrical effect. This statement supposes, of course, that the metals are perfectly homogeneous. If we set up an ordinary galvanic battery and connect wires to the two poles of the battery, these two poles will be in a state of strain with reference to each other, the strain existing in the ether. Note, the ether is a substance supposed to exist throughout the universe, between atoms as well as between stars, and to be the medium through which radiant heat, light, and ether waves created electrically are transmitted, as sound is transmitted through the air. It will be more fully treated in future chapters. End of note. If we bring the two wires together, the energy, in the form of electricity, begins to fall from the metal possessing the higher potential, possible electrical energy, in proportion as it is released by the action of the acids. In the case of zinc and copper, or zinc and carbon, the fall is from the zinc toward the carbon or copper. All metals possess a certain potential, which in this case we will call energy of position. When they are dissolved by the action of acids, this energy will be given out, and if opportunity is afforded, there will be a flow from the higher to the lower potential. Let us illustrate. Suppose we have two reservoirs of water, both of them occupying the same level, and both of them above sea level. Both of them would be in a state of potential, and possess energy of position with reference to the sea, because the water can be drawn off when it will fall down to the sea level, and in its onward course possess the ability to do work. But considered with reference to each other, the two reservoirs are equipotential. If we connect them together, the water will flow from one to the other. They are in the condition that two pieces of zinc would be put in the same battery cell. They are equipotential, and therefore there is no fall from one to the other. If we pour acid into the cell, it will attack both pieces of zinc, but the energy given up will be in the form of heat. If we take out one of the pieces and substitute a piece of copper or carbon, and connect the two together, we have a flow of electricity from the zinc to the copper. End of chapter 3